Is there any replacement for hustle and hard work? That is a question that me and Amanda Thompson of Naughty Wines discuss. Over the last few years, we've gone from a hustle hard culture to setting boundaries and creating time for yourself. What works? Do we want a lifestyle business or do we want a global business? And both approaches can work. Join me as we discuss the benefits of overworking and underworking. Welcome to another episode of the Anything is Possible podcast. I'm with Amanda Thompson of Naughty and Amanda and I met on a roof terrace many years ago in Manchester over a glass of Prosecco. Um, I was immediately drawn to another female entrepreneur and have watched Amanda's journey and been so impressed um, with her new brand launch, which I'm going to tell you about in a minute, and also her involvement with female entrepreneurs, including EY. So. Um, Amanda's business is called Naughty. It is a non-alcoholic wine um, brand, but I'm going to get her to tell you what the brand is before we continue. Thanks so much, Holly. Pleasure to be here. Uh, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? How we're never quite sure anymore what real time we've spent together or, or, or what online time in this world now. Uh, yes, yeah, so I had a champagne and a Prosecco brand, which was successful. I'd I trained in wine um, and launched that, and we have just pivoted in 2019 uh, to alcohol-free. And the naughty is a play on words. It's uh, O, naughty, as in yeah. 0%. The Americans love it because they don't use the word naught. They use zero. So that is kind of an interesting one. Um, and now we're the world's leading premium non-alcoholic wine brand, which is pretty exciting. We've got a whole portfolio. So by next week, we will have our still Provence-style rosé launch. So I've got the Blanc, which is just behind me. We've got the red wine, and then we've got two sparkling alternatives to champagne, a Brut and a rosé. So it's pretty exciting at the moment. Very exciting. But listen, I mean, non-alcoholic options are very popular at the moment but when you launched in 2019 although there was a turn um it wasn't quite there yet and then obviously we went into 2020 when wine took a, a massive <laughs> resurgence because everyone was at home so obviously this was an idea pre-2019 can you tell us the journey to launch like where did the you know quite inspiring idea come from well I grew up with a mother who was an early stage health food entrepreneur and not in the sense of kind of big American founder, she used to, you know, be an entrepreneur in its purest sense, which was to make money and put food on the table. And she was in the health food space in the 70s. So this is when it was very hippie, delivering muesli on a bicycle. So I'd grown up recognizing the importance of a healthy diet. And then when I was at the BBC in the arts world, there was this interesting dichotomy because back in my day before social media kids, I know, we used to party, <laughs> but no one was looking, that was the fun bit. We used to work hard and play hard and uh, often, highly inappropriately now, we would stay up all night and then we'd put on our makeup and be on TV or radio in the morning. Um, and I met my husband in Cannes at the film festival during those days, so stories for another time. Um, but that was really when I developed my love of fine wine and champagne, essentially when I wasn't paying. Um, yeah. So it's very easy to be a champagne snob when you're not shelling out the cash 
And so that was sort of my historical relationship with good wine. Um, but I became really interested in the ingredients in wine when I learned how much sugar was being added to wine and also chemicals um, at the lower end of, uh, of winemaking. And interestingly, I can tell you this in 2023, wine is the only legal consumable that doesn't have an ingredients list. So no ingredients list on bottles. And you may kind of go, oh, I've looked at labels. I've turned my bottle you know, the other way round and sort of looked at, you know, what's on the back there. Actually, there's no sort of global legislation about what you have to list. So there's a lot of smoke and mirrors at the cheaper end of winemaking, particularly because just with processed food, if you want to make wine palatable, you chuck in sugar and you chuck in chemicals. There's no real difference. And sadly, under 10 pounds, nine or 10 pounds in the UK, you get very little going to the liquid. And that may come as a bit of a surprise and a shock for some of your, your podcast fans that unfortunately, if you're still playing around when you're buying wine in that five, six pound space, very little is going to the liquid because of the cost of production, branding, dry goods. You need to get up really to eight, nine, ten pounds to actually get any qualitative level in the UK. And so I always say to people, the, the quick trick I say, forget even me selling my brand to you. When people say, oh, well, what, what's a quick win there? I say maybe just buy one organic bottle maybe for £10, instead of two cheap bottles for £5. And that's just one sort of quick trick I see for a win in lessening those chemicals going into your body. But that really became the driver for me to set up my own originally champagne and sparkling wine brand. And so to cut a very long historical entrepreneurial story short, I moved to France, retrained in wine. I was one of the first students at the Cordon Bleu Wine Diploma course, and then I came back to the UK to launch my champagne brand because I didn't want to sell snow to the Eskimos in France. And <laughs> then pivoted fast in 2019. So just pre-pandemic, that thing we don't want to really talk about, uh, to alcohol-free. And so actually, there was this really interesting opportunity for me because, well, we all know, Holly, how sadly, I mean, we kind of laughed about it, but also it was quite sad. Um, alcoholism was dramatically on the rise during the pandemic. And even those who didn't have a serious problem often, you know, found that it became a daily occurrence earlier and earlier. And so there ended up being this interesting kind of dichotomy where sadly that was all going on. But I also recognised the opportunity um, that if I could create something really delicious and get it out there that didn't have alcohol, I was really doing something quite incredible in the world. So the vision piece was very clear. I wanted to build the world's leading non-alcoholic wine brand, but what I wanted to do, and this was the vision from the get-go, was really build my bottles into everyday traditional wine drinking. I wasn't building a sanctimonious brand. I wasn't saying don't drink. I was saying you've got a really delicious wine here, that happens to not have alcohol. I'm just back from New York and I did a wine tasting with, you know, with a brilliant taster. And he said to me, that isn't just great wine, Amanda, not just great non-alcoholic wine. That's great wine, period, which wow. is kind of the mecca and what I was really aiming for. And so that is, I guess, the truncated version of the very big story. 
so many questions so many questions so um so one um i'd like to know this fun fact so when we're talking about wines that have got high sugar and high chemicals is that when they say that your hangovers are worse when you drink essentially cheap wine because like with anything you can feel foggy headed if you have too much sugar or is is that the principle behind that so it's a bit more nuanced but that's one of the principles um so, so sulfites get a very bad rep and everybody wants to jump on that and say oh it's the sulfites Basically, organic wine, sparkling wine, unless it's entirely natural, and then you've got that whole cloudy thing where a bottle might be like Coca-Cola and fizz when you open it. That's a different niche world. But most wine will have sulfites, and it's not the sulfites per se that are bad for you. It's the levels of them. So, yes, you've often got higher higher sort of preservative levels. You've often got those things added that you might not want to be there, and you've got the sugar. Ultimately, alcohol ethanol gives you the hangover no question yeah. so to not get a hangover don't drink um yeah but you're going to be in a better place if you're drinking wine that's produced in as natural way as possible so for example going back to the financial piece ironically some of the world's finest wine is produced in Burgundy. It's made actually in a biodynamic way, but they just don't publicize that. So some of the world's finest wine is produced in a really natural way, actually. So there's a lot that's really hard to decipher, but my quick wins in wine are spend more, spend nine, 10 pounds on a bottle, look for organic where possible or biodynamic, and also find makers that you trust. It's really a bit of trial and error. And this is where it's a, quite a difficult answer to say, to not get a hangover, don't drink or drink naughty. Um, yeah. Or really often it is a case of, of, of spending a bit more. And, and, and that's where people don't always want to hear that advice. Yeah. So I, I really took note when we were talking about the branding and the name, where did the name come from? Because it is so clever. It's thank you. Um, it was just a lot of bouncing around um, with with the team, um, and I wanted something catchy. I think as an entrepreneur, I'm good at two things, and I think the best founders know what they're good at, and they know all the things they're bad at. The two things I'm good at are the vision and the taste. And so my vision was always super clear. You know, change the world, make it a healthier place with something delicious. So every time anyone chooses a bottle of naughty over an alcoholic counterpart, they're actually making a health choice. Now, it's a health choice that you don't have to be sanctimonious about because you've got something delicious you're drinking. But that's such a powerful vision for me that, you know, when I'm long gone, everyone who's drunk naughty over alcohol is really doing something for their well-being. So for me, that was the powerful vision. And so um, I wanted something that was globally easy, catchy, one word, ask for it at the bar. I wanted a global brand from the beginning before I'd even sold yeah. a bottle. And I started to play around with words. And then I liked that catchy thing. I like the fact that fun was there because I think so much of the alcohol-free world, um, certainly in a lot of people's eyes, who do drink particularly, they're very negative about it. They think it's all very sanctimonious and serious and depressing. So I wanted to flip that, you know, so I love that kind of playful element, but also I just wanted a globally catchy brand that in any country around the world, people could just say, I'd love a naughty, 
I want naughty. Yeah. Do you want naughty? Bang. We had a lot of fun in America, my biggest market now, because naught and zero, um, they don't use zero for naught. So that's been fun and they've loved the nuance. So that worked really well and, and wasn't a surprise to me. What was a surprise to me was the AF part. Um, I may be a naive Brit, but I didn't know that that, that in, in American kind of vernacular, AF has an interesting meaning. You, you, you can, you know, I'm sure a lot of your viewers will get that now, AF. And I hadn't thought that one through. And there was this wonderful moment when I was started to sort of selling um, Naughty, the first bottle on this big American presentation. And then someone's like, oh, my God, I love that. That's really mischievous, you know, Naughty. Da, da, da. And I was like, and they repeated those words back to me um, as, you know, and I was like, um, oh, no, 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 I meant alcohol free. And I did my whole <laughs> British kind of shock thing, like, which wasn't even a faux act. It was quite literal. And then I got off that Zoom and I was like panicking, going, I'm, this is a terrible idea. And then I did a bit more sort of research with my friends over there and a lot of the thought leaders and it just blew up and they were like, no, we love it keep it it's even better so thankfully naughtyaf.com our website in america is doing fine i love it i think it's absolutely brilliant and um that's so it's quite a bold statement right at the beginning to say you wanted it to be a global brand where did that like why where did that drive come from because some people just be happy to sit on supermarket shelves so where was that big big vision from i think i've always thought big in life and I don't think it's bad to be happy to be a supermarket brand to get into a supermarket I mean I've done it it's really hard and I think it's really important for founders to decide what they want to be and do and and my advice for any aspiring entrepreneurs female founders male founders whoever listening is I do think the vision piece is important from the get-go Because for me, if I think I know what I'm building, I always know what I'm building. I I always see it almost like a rainbow, my vision. And that's there all the time and it's super clear. And therefore, every setback I get, and it's funny when you'll know because you're a fellow founder, you know, when people haven't built a business from a blank sheet of paper, they come on these business podcasts, they go, tell me about your challenges. And you're like, well, I mean, should we speak the rest of my life about my challenges? You know, I mean, we have challenges every hour, every day, sometimes every minute. So I know that's a difficult question to answer for someone who's not, you know, in the entrepreneur space. Um, But it's like, if you've got the vision, that always keeps you going. So I'm not telling everybody they have to think about building a global brand. But I think if you're building a kitchen table business or, or a UK business, or I always think it's really smart to actually find your vision first, and then you're working towards that. So I think that a lot of entrepreneurs seem a little bit muddly along the way about their vision and and have built incredible things but maybe haven't thought clearly enough about the vision and I would advise anybody who's thinking about having a business already has one to be able to tell anyone their vision in one sentence you know it's like the Americans say the elevator pitch you know I just think it's so important imperative actually and I keep 
you know, reminding everybody, not everybody's vision has to be as massive as mine, but whatever it is, I would keep it very clearly where, you know, there, uh, you know, it's always interesting, is it whatever people's buzz is? I, I don't do manifesting, it, it, but it sounds interesting. And I know it works for some people. I guess it's that sort of thing. You know, uh, I haven't got deep into manifesting, but I gather, I gather it's the same sort of philosophy. You know, what are you manifesting? What are you trying to do here? Because I think that what I find is so many British women are building incredible businesses. But often when I ask them about them, I almost have to draw out quite how incredible the business is and I think I've come from broadcasting I've come from a tough male-dominated world in old newsrooms I'm in a male-dominated world now in wine you know I've built my resilience and confidence early stage from a complicated childhood you know that's a whole other podcast but I think that women really we all need to just be much clearer on what we're setting out to achieve and then we we're perhaps not going to be quite so afraid to ask for it and maybe this is going to help solve a lot of the issues around funding problems for women I mean it's all very pertinent coming out of International Women's Day I mean it's embarrassing that we still have to have one right you know but the stats aren't changing on women in business 81 percent of, of 11 to to 18 year olds can't name a single female business leader which is shocking yeah. I think yeah. so, so it's up to all of us to do something about that so I think going back to your question I've just always had a really big vision which British people call ambitious in the US that's how they all work pretty much so I just think we could all do with a bit more of that kind of visionary big thinking on this side of the pond if we're going to move the needle at all yeah and do you think that comes naturally because something I spoke about recently was obviously I'm like obsessed with personal development and that's not come from nurture like my family my mum and dad are not into that at all I just have always since been little read and been curious and want to know how the mind works do you think that like big vision piece is that something you got from your mum do you think or do you think it's just in you I think it's probably like you say, now I'm forced to analyse it in me. I think I probably started life, you know, ready to challenge. I mean, I was a journalist first, so I've spent my life standing up for things I don't think are right. Sometimes even when it's awkward, you know, I mean, I think it was probably in me. But that doesn't mean it can't be learn to some degree and I always think the important piece in in business is my point about there's only two things I'm good at vision and taste I think you as an entrepreneur self-awareness is fantastic so I think once you know what you're good at and everything you're bad at then you fill in all those gaps don't you and if you're going to have a co-founder scenario you want that co-founder to be the yin to your yang so I think yeah I think you and I were probably the types who started life with a bit of hustle yeah yeah definitely and so you've obviously excelled in everything that you did before because you were a journalist but not just a journalist you know for the BBC um so just take us um before we carry on talking about naughty just take us like quick synopsis of career journalism and then changing into the wine industry sure I mean you're very kind saying excelled I would say yeah and 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 I should take the compliment because women aren't good at taking compliments (laughs) first of all thank you very much for saying that that's what I should say 
day. Secondly, I think if it looked like I excelled, and thank you again, um, that was due to the hustle and hard work. And I guess that gets back to that piece that no one wants to really hear about because everybody wants the secret sauce. There's not a founder I know in my incredible big founder network who doesn't work harder than perhaps society might say we should. And so that's why I always think that there's such a gulf between you and I doing these wonderful podcasts where we're spitballing, it's lovely to see you, you know, (laughs) and actually everything else that is not fun going on behind the scenes. And so I think it's always important to, to, to share that, you know, there is no secret source. The secret source is hustle and graft. That's it. Do you know what? I'm so refreshing to hear you say that. This is so weird. I nearly recorded something on social media about this this morning, but I didn't know how controversial it was because we've um we've just been pulling out a load of like motivational quotes here at the office ready for the Anything is Possible conference. And I've got my boards that I've saved for years on Pinterest and a lot of it is like hustle, hustle, which which now... You know, there's a whole thing on no, you know, you know, get rid of the hustle culture. We shouldn't, you know, set boundaries like da 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 da. Now, I don't know if I'm old school, right? But I don't know. To your point, I don't know anybody that's got a successful business that works nine till five. And if they are, and if they have, please tell me how you're doing it because I just don't know how that happens. So I think, Holly, let's agree and and circle back to that that discussion point about what you're trying to achieve. And I think we have to recognise, don't we, that there are probably a lot of women out there, I know you've mostly got women watching this, but men, who want to achieve a kitchen table successful lifestyle business. And that is fantastic. And, And props, that's one thing. If you're building something bigger, which is what we're talking about, there's no escaping the hustle. There's no escaping the fact that it will be challenging for one's mental health. There's no escaping the fact that there will be times when we'll be working uh, from six o'clock until midnight and then not sleep. I think they're very different models. And I think I'm sure you're the same as me. I recognize that my staff need their boundaries. And so what I do, for example, is anytime after hours, I deal with everything, even as the founder still, unless... It's urgent. And I say to my staff, I will only contact you out of hours when it's urgent. And so they know if I message them and I need something, because I'm traveling a lot. I was in New York last week. If I need something out of hours, they'll pick up. But but you know, so I think I think we're talking about different things, aren't we? But I completely agree. At founder level, no one's building a global brand, a hugely successful UK company, whatever level of big business without the relentless graft and hustle for everybody else who wants to focus more on their lifestyle that's great and let's just really respect that I think they're quite different yeah yeah no I I do agree and and I think um I think that it's taken a little bit of a swing hasn't it in terms of the media in terms of it there was this thing on hustle hustle especially for females like and then it has swung the other way I um you know, personally, I'm at the stage now where, you know, and similar similar to you, like, I've had my business 11 years now, and I can feel a mental burnout. But you, as a founder, how do you stop? Because if you stop, your business stops. Have you experienced, I'm sure you have, have you experienced burnout, you know, since you've been an entrepreneur? It's a really interesting question, Holly, and I really empathise. And I'm sure I've, I've felt many of the feelings you're talking about. And I think, 
as women in business, I think we're in the spotlight a lot more, or we probably certainly feel like we are because we're not scaling enough because you know I mean we're competing with the big boys who are mostly boys men and so it's a difficult subject isn't it absolutely um yes and it's hard to check oneself sometimes isn't it um and I have a husband who luckily will check me and sometimes he'll say get to yoga that the only thing really that grounds me and calms me down is exercise I suppose so that's it classic type a right I don't know what your thing is yeah so the answer is yes and it's not a good place to be and but I think it's it's addictive isn't it 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 is addictive entrepreneurship I mean as you say you can't stop yeah yeah and it's interesting actually just thinking about what you're doing with naughty because we we know we chatted up front in the podcast that this is not about um any kind of like alcohol free life this is pro choice you know um giving people balance in that choice and 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 to what we were talking about i found um myself in lockdown drinking a lot more i was isolating on my own and actually mm. until really really recently was a habit i'd got into and couldn't seem to get out of because and like not alcoholism but like before lockdown i was very like right i'm going out this saturday i know i'm going to drink this i know i'm going to be a bit hungry sunday i'm okay with that but what i wouldn't do is i wouldn't drink on my own in the house and i wouldn't use alcohol anything other than enjoyment and then since lockdown and it continued because I found I've worked the hardest I've ever worked since lockdown my go-to up until the end of 2022 I'm stressed I'm going to have a glass of wine this has happened I don't know what to do with myself I'm going to have a glass of wine and I've made a real conscious effort to um to to move away from that in 2023 um and, um, you know, I think it, as somebody that doesn't want to give up drink, it's amazing to have that choice. Well, I think that's very brave. Thank you for sharing that. And I think your story is really, really common. It's that thing where you're not worried, you're addicted, but you've just suddenly taken stock and recognised that it's becoming such an integral part of daily life. And I think that was the dangerous point that, that most of us felt at some point during the period. And I think um, it's an interesting one, isn't it? It, it? Everybody's got their story and everybody's got their level. And it's such a, it, it can be quite a sort of controversial conversation because everyone's got opinions. And I think what I really wanted to do with Naughty was say, we've got something really delicious Often at events, if you're drinking Naughty, I'm drinking champagne, or I've had a glass of champagne and switched to Naughty, or in a glass, you know, amongst all the bottles, we don't have to shout about it. So that's where for corporate entertaining and events, it's so pertinent. And and there are so many people who use it as a prop. I know loads of famous sort of hospitality people. They're like, oh my God, it's been a godsend. Because everyone's like, oh, aren't you having another glass of champagne? And I'm like, oh yeah, 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 cheers with the brute bubbles. And so there's this really interesting piece with Naughty where, of course, I want everybody to PR it online, and thankfully they do. But behind the scenes, you've got that beautiful glassware, the glass. We have an inclusive drinking experience 
And it's not really the topic of conversation. And going back to your point, I think what a lot of people are doing very successfully, I do it, is I might have one glass of champagne or bubbles, then switch to naughty, or this vlog will be my everyday sort of fridge wine in the week if I want a little treat. You know, historically, we might have after work tonight said, oh, I really want a nice cold glass of something. Ah, I can have a nice cold glass of something delicious. And of course, even if I decide to have two or three, I'm going to wake up early, ready to face the day. And I think for entrepreneurs and business people, that's a godsend. Because if we've got this burnout scenario, all of that stress, whether or not, you know, your mother's, whatever your reason, watching and listening, we all know how hard life can be sometimes. We've all got our stories. And if we've got a new ritual that we've replaced boom and that's where naughty really can fit into everyday life you replace your favorite bottle of red white bubbles whatever with naughty and you switch to that whenever and you wake up and feel good in the morning so it's kind of win-win well it's funny because um I'm actually going out um I haven't had a drink for about three weeks which sounds not much but it you know compared to, to what I was in and I'm going out on Saturday with a friend and we looked at the menu and I said oh they've got the non-alcoholic Aperol spritz because I was thinking oh actually that'd be quite I love Aperol spritz anyway but actually that might be a nice drink not to have the alcohol in because um you know I'm not drinking that for a drunk feeling I'm drinking it because I love the taste so um it's just nice to see the alternative so um so back to like um I'm always fascinated because I'm in the service industry how do you make a product like so how does it go from you've got this idea that you want to do you know this this product but you obviously need the bottle the, the, the like how does it happen I'm so interested yeah, uh, there's a lot of steps. I suppose the way I view it is almost like a ladder or like a to-do list, I guess. So the first key step really was finding out what was out there initially. And so let's take when I developed Naughty, what was out there was a lot of lower priced liquid that was very sugary very chemically um actually didn't make you feel good in the morning despite not having alcohol because going back to your point about sugar and chemicals even without alcohol they're still going to give you a headache right so that was out there and that wasn't anything that a wine lover would drink so i think what separated my brand and what changed that position in, in 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 the world of wine was having a brand that a wine lover would would drink. And I think because I was coming at the creation from that historical wine snob place, I think that was pertinent. So the first step was what was out there already. And truthfully, I was pretty upset. There was really nothing at all that even vaguely pleased me. And that's the truth. It was really depressing, actually. And so... Then the next step was when I found a maker who was making well-crafted liquid, but it just wasn't to my taste. So the steps were really, I guess, the classic journalist piece, all of the research of what was already happening out there. For example, in America, they've they've long had some very successful alcohol-free wine, but I see very successful 
you know, like under $10 and, and, and for a non-discerning wine crowd, it would be like, what are you going to pour if you need something, but you've sort of got to drink it? And, you know, all of those sort of apologetic things, nothing yeah. to do with the brand I was creating. And so that was the same sort of process. And then working with a maker to create the recipe and then the branding. I mean, you know, it's like that classic thing, isn't it? These are whole other podcasts in themselves. Yeah. But but it was it was sort of a, a checklist of to-do lists that you that you work through, I guess. I mean, yeah. every stage is tough. The toughest stage was creating the liquid, actually. That was yeah. the toughest stage by far. Yeah, and how and and so that from launch in two thousand and nineteen, from starting to develop the product, how long was that? So I I had the idea in seventeen eighteen, so probably a year ballpark. Or I mean, actually, yeah. I probably had the idea a bit earlier, but so I started to embark on it probably seventeen eighteen, and then yeah, probably a year roughly. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've mentioned your team and your strengths and weaknesses. So tell us about your team. How many people's in it? What's the hierarchy and the setup? So we've got a fantastic team now. I've tried different permutations. At one point in, when I had a champagne and Prosecco brand, I, I had a slightly bigger team with more, less experienced people. I flipped my model now. I think in COVID, a lot of us reshaped our businesses. And so there was a few people who were happy to move on. And, you know, it was just just a, 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 a positive reshape all round. But what I'd learned was I actually find the business functions better with quite a top-heavy team of experts and less juniors. So we've got, I suppose, you could argue an unusual model for a drinks brand. Um, we've got we've got roughly 10 um, and then a couple, a couple of different people who sort of are yeah extension partners yeah um so we're a uk entity and then we sell around the world what they call in in wine x works or fob so basically the, the third parties pick up the wine from our external partners and we sort of mitigated the brexit piece we, we produce outside the uk so we only bring bottles into the UK that are going to be sold to Waitrose or Majestic or on our website. So most of our partners buy from outside the UK where the wine's produced. That's really interesting, isn't it? And I think that's something that I, when people ask you, what would you change, you know, from when you set up the business? And I think in the early days, certainly with me, you do pay for, you know, you want to keep costs down, so you pay for less experienced people. And then I think as you get more into it you've realized the value of experience and how much time that actually saves you and what it brings to the business so it sounds like that have you found the same you found the same thing yeah yeah but I love do you know what I love junior team and you get we've got some real bright sparks at the moment who are um, absolutely brilliant and developing really quick but you have to have that senior layer as well and I think for you as a founder and entrepreneur to do to your point your strengths work on the vision the product you know, you need that that senior support on the ground, don't you? I think that's interesting. Um, so yeah, yeah. you're right. You're right about the combination as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so 
you're a B Corp as well. So that so I've heard um a podcast with a guy that founded Cook talking about being a B Corp. And it's it's a process, right, to get there. For the for the non-knowing podcast listeners, can you sum up kind of in a few sentences what being a B Corp is? Sure. It's basically striving to do the right thing sustainably, ethically. And really when nobody's looking. Um, and, and I guess, you know, we all read a lot about greenwashing. We all know that we need to do better for the climate. So obviously that's the big piece. Um, we've got written into our share articles that we can make decisions in business, uh, not just to do with profit, but also to do with ethics. And so that's also relevant. So it's really everything down to how you treat your staff, to ensuring that you try and put the spotlight on diversity with your hiring of team, you name it, it's really striving to do better. And, and, and what's really interesting about BCOR and the recertification process each year of going through it is you're all recognising that you're not perfect. No business is perfect, but it's just really trying to do better. So you basically get a point system when you start for every aspect of your business. And then each year you have to strive to do better. Um, and so that's sort of where we are with it. it it's, it's becoming more recognised in the UK. I mean, Coots Bank, for example, have put up female founded B Corps on their wall at the Strand in London this month. Um, it, it started in America with businesses like Patagonia, who yeah. are encouraging you not to buy things. So it's it's quite a pertinent um, sort of philosophy that, that plays out really well with the younger generation who kind of are much more attuned to buying from businesses that, that they think are ethically doing the right thing. Oh, absolutely. And it's really interesting. I think that as a business, I can learn from definitely our younger members of the team. And, uh, you know, in that, in that space, but also in your space, because I, what I noticed as well a few years ago is my drinking habits from being like, you know, um, that like Ladette culture compared to kind of 20 year olds in the office now is a really interesting dynamic and I think in a way what's quite interesting is you kind of get to the point if you if you sort of say to the younger people oh I'm dying for a glass of wine tonight it just wouldn't be on their radar to do that after work so actually it makes you want to do a bit better because you're a bit like oh well I sound like you know an alcoholic if I'm going to have a glass of wine for stress so I think we can learn so much and I think I don't know if, if you're the same but in terms of sustainability I love to involve them in it because I feel like it's just ingrained in them um I mean yeah. you obviously had a very progressive mum that um taught you quite a lot probably from a young age so I, I guess it's in you is it to kind of build better businesses and be better I suppose it comes around it's interesting is it you and I both reflecting on our childhood and what was nature nurture yeah. um and who knows right but yeah as I get older I'm probably thinking more it, it's the the nature piece but who knows right yeah um yeah I, I think it's just that piece of well going back to my point trying to do the right thing when no one's looking which obviously is the opposite of greenwashing and I think businesses who are pretending to do the right thing and putting out these platitudes as to what they're doing I think will get caught out we all know it's hard we all know no one's perfect but I think you can't argue now any which way that you have to sign up to the philosophy, whether you like it or not. So I think 
that's a positive thing. You know, everything's a challenge there. I mean, we're still obviously dealing with glass. We're still shipping bottles. It's not ideal. You know, we're Rome wasn't built in a day, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And um, you've been, um, we were talking before, you've been plant-based, I think, always, have you, in terms of eating? Yeah, very radical since the 70s. Yeah. yeah. Have I you mean, ever had not... a steak or a piece of chicken? Have you ever had? No, only accidentally in Asia or whatever, where they mistakenly put it in your food. I've never chosen to. And so I'm, I'm quite an interesting non-meat eater in the sense that it's not a political decision I mean obviously I have opinions on whether one should eat meat but 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 um I was brought up vegetarian which is quite a hard concept to get across to people who have a strong relationship with loving meat I've never eaten it I've never eaten meat or fish apart from as as I've said accidentally traveling and so it's not even as if if I got over my philosophical beliefs, it's not even like I would like it because when I've had it accidentally, if you've never had it, it's a really hard concept to explain. But I just wouldn't eat flesh uh, and a living thing because it's just not in my DNA, I suppose. So it's certainly not like I could miss it, you know. And is that a space you think you'd ever be interested in going into the food, the food business? Or are you purely... No, no, I'm super happy in in wine. Um, And... The vegan element's important. We got our vegan certification for our sparkling when we launched it. And we were the first brand in the mainstream to talk about animal products being used in wine filtration. So I guess it's integrated into my wine business, that conversation. So we were the first wine brand that all the vegan community got excited about in the UK and then around the world because no one had ever really focused on that before, which goes back to my point that the wine industry is full of smoke and mirrors. And we recognise that anything that we could focus on to be transparent was really only going to be a plus. Yeah. And I I mean, I love the wellness space. And I think if I had my time again, that's the industry I would have gone into. Um, and there's so many exciting brands in the food and beverage sector, um, you know, that are, are treading into this space. Have you, um, from an, because I am an events experiential background, have you done many collaborations with other like food brands or, you know, to activate Naughty? Yeah, we, we are always open to partnerships and we're starting to do more in the US on that side. And anyone who's got a really interesting, innovative brand in another space is always particularly interesting to us. I think it's been fantastic the way the alcohol-free sort of homogenous brand community has risen. But we're quite different in that we can operate very successfully there. But our bigger play is in that traditional, everyday, mainstream wine community. So I think we've got a lot of touch points. We can operate within the alcohol-free space, within the wine industry, within the wellness space, within the health tech space. So, yeah, there are all kinds of, of partnership opportunities that are exciting to us, usually in brands that where they share our ultimate philosophy but there's a really interesting kind of cross section in the Venn diagram. Yeah, yeah. And you um you wrote you wrote in an article pre-2023 that you wanted Naughty to be available in 20 countries by 2023, but you smashed that goal. Can you tell our listeners where you are at the moment? Well, I think I mean my sales director always tells me off. He says, No, it's more now. I think we're in about 50 countries ballpark. Some of those are seeded, so we may be selling 
a few thousand bottles. Um, America's our big play now. So just back, I'm just back from the US um, and the New York crowd is super excited about naughty. And of course, that's where trends are really properly built. So that's uh, really exciting. Um, that was where I was with a wine taster and we were tasting and he's like, that's not just great non-alcoholic wine, Amanda. That's great wine, period. That's a really great... And that was really the the manner from heaven. Those were the words that I wanted to hear. And so, yeah, now now we're a serious brand in America. I mean, we're leading the American wine market in terms of positioning. I'm on the Non-Alcoholic Beverage Association board in the US with all the big non-alcoholic founders in in beer and in alcohol-free spirits as to how we shape that industry in the US. I'm the only Brit as the wine expert, which was pretty exciting. Definitely. And to scale of uh, in that way, um, have you had funding? Do you have a business partner? Like, how have you been able to scale to such a degree? Sure. So we took early stage seed funding. There's a, a scheme in the UK that some of your listeners may know about. This is assuming the budget keeps it. It's really important for early stage founders. People could invest under a scheme called SEIS which is basically, to cut a long story short, where you can put money in and it it really is offset with your tax in the sense that even if, God forbid, the business doesn't work out, you know, it means you don't really lose much money. So it's just a really tax-efficient way, early stage of getting money into the economy to help businesses grow right in the beginning. So we took early stage seed funding um, from a few key people that I'd hustled to find. Um, and then we did uh, quite a few years ago, a, a crowdfund that overfunded at, at over a million. And then I got the business to profitability really mm-hmm. as quickly as I could. Um, that was quite rare for a, a drinks brand. Um, they mostly cash burn for a long time. And so I'm pretty proud of that along with my team. And so we're now profitable. And we uh, are probably not going to do a raise for a while. I mean, it's lovely. It's a classic thing in business. When you're desperate for money, it's almost impossible to get it. It's a bit like dating, I suppose. The more needy you are, no one wants to know. Now, all the big investors would happily throw money at me because I've built a profitable consumer brand, which is very rare in the consumer brand world and certainly in the drinks world. I think we're probably rarer than hen's teeth. So um, I've proved myself there. So that's that's pretty interesting. Um, fundraising is a whole deep topic, isn't it? I mean, what I really liked about that early stage sort of crowdfund is it's a very democratic process. Um, and we still live in a world we all know after International Women's Day where it is very hard to get serious institutional funding as a woman, a lot harder, despite the fact that statistically we're more likely to scale successful business. Therein lies an irony. Uh, but crowdfunding is a much more democratic way for female founders to raise uh, because actually it's been proved that it's just as easy, if not easier, for female founders to raise that way. So that's quite a nice thing yeah. to share, I suppose. What a great story that you got to profit quite quickly. If you were going to give our listeners who have got various different businesses, you're like three top tips. And I know it's specific to your business, but what were what are your tips of how to get to profitability when you've got a heavy investment up front? 
free stuff is overrated. Um, I give away very little free stuff. Every man and his dog every day asks for free stuff. For me, each bottle of Naughty is super valuable. Louis Vuitton don't give away bags. You know, um, when I was a journalist, I used to go to wonderful parties and half the time you'd ask people what the champagne was and there might be a little bit of branding in the background, but but the poor staff serving wouldn't have been told. Everybody thinks that drinks brands are built on free stuff. They're actually built the opposite way around, I believe, sustainably. Don't give away any free stuff. I mean, if I give somebody a sample, it's because I have personally said, yes, I mean, Holly, I would love you to taste my wine. It means something. Yeah. You know, free stuff is not valued. Yeah. conceptually so the yeah. first tip is don't really? do free stuff really? um second tip is cash is king it's a boring one there's never as much as you need ever ever yeah. third one is and this is tough for some people you know you've got to be self-aware and, and i know it's an uncomfortable conversation with lots of people but this is why i say i'm good at two things vision and taste what are you good at? You know, don't pretend you're good at everything. You're not, uh, you know, pick what you're good at, recognize it, analyze, be self-aware and then fill in all of those gaps in expertise as early as you can. So those would be my three tips. They are brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, so we're, we're coming to the close of the podcast. I could genuinely talk to you all day. It's so articulate. Hey, um, it's lovely to chat. So interesting. Um, you, I'm just really curious um, in terms of, you know, the one goal that I did read about you, the 20 countries by 2023. I'm sure that's one of many goals. How do you set goals? Do you do short term, long term? Do you write things down? Like, what's your process? I mean, we have a strategy with the team. So our strategy is very clear as to which markets we want to win and go deep in. So really, America is a win and go deep market. And the lovely thing about winning, I say America, I don't mean every state in America. I think that's a very important point to share. Look on America and business as different states, as in different countries. So that's also a tip. Um, and so winning key states in America, and, you know, that was really the strategy. Um, and then, of course, what you've got, going back to trends in New York and London, really, is if you pick your key cities, you know, where trends are built for a brand like mine, it's all about building that trend and then going deep and then becoming an everyday brand. I mean, those are kind of the obviously easy to say, almost impossible to do. Um, and so, yeah, we have a very, very clear strategy, um, but we also, and this is important, I think, to our success, and I would recommend to entrepreneurs who have big vision business, is do not ever miss an opportunity that is also in front of you. Because I think sometimes, and this is where you've got the advantage over big business, sometimes you know, big business is steering a ship one way strategically. And then if something else comes along, no, you know, they couldn't even look or think about that. So you've got to have your clear strategy, but also recognize if the phone rings this afternoon and I pick it up and there's an opportunity, I will still look to take it. Yeah. So it's that kind of combination 
um, that I think is important. And actually, the other thing I didn't share and we didn't talk about and I don't think it's talked about enough in business, uh, you know, with founders is execution and obsession with detail and always doing what you say you'll do. You know, I, I say to my team, you get one shot, one customer, you screw up once, that's it, you lose them forever. So yeah. our obsession with customers is just at the heart of our business. And if something goes wrong with the delivery, we say, we are so sorry about that. What can we do to put this right? Because I know when I'm buying from a brand, the second someone sends me a crappy email or doesn't respond or that's your, you know, we live in such a fast society culturally with brands and our relationship with brands. And, and then just lastly, always share the story. Never forget that anybody you speak to will sell your brand and so that's the bit going right back to the hustle um holly you'll know and the bit that perhaps isn't that healthy you know if i'm out for dinner with my husband tonight unfortunately for him if if naughty's not on the list it will be an obvious sales opportunity potentially i mean it's not fun to be around founders all the time because we're kind of a crazy bunch but yeah. you know you never miss a sales opportunity yeah absolutely and how i am going to ask you a couple more questions really really quick how does your week look how do you manage your time um like what is a typical week for amanda so i overschedule my diary um and that's something i'm working on i'm working on saying yes to less um, if I like somebody and they ask me to do something within reason, I say yes. And I realize now my business is at a, a different level. So I have to be a little more protective of my time. So I, I don't have a PAEA. I had one for a while and it didn't work so well for me. Same with me. I manage my I manage my own diary. So people kind of go, oh, tell your PA to do this. I'm like, no, no, no. Your PA can talk to me, you know, whatever. I find all that really funny sometimes when people try and create this whole layer that you can't talk to the founder. Um, and so um, I overschedule and I, I'm sure you know how that is. And I think it's very easy on Zoom to think you can go back to back because you're not moving from your desk. But of course, mentally, you do need those breaks. So I'm trying to get better at that. But my diary is literally, I mean, my friends who aren't founders look at my diary on my phone and they just go, they come out in hives. Um, so I micro, I micromanage my own diary, basically. I'm the same. I had a PA before lockdown, but now because everything is Zoom and you can do things quickly, I just find it easier. But I don't know if I'm like you. I have my steps in, my gym in, my lunch in. Like I literally cram everything in so that every minute is maximized. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. But um, so before we close, Amanda, for those people now that are super curious about Naughty, just quickly whiz us through your product range. Where can we buy it and take it home? And where can we drink it out and about? Sure. So find us at naughtyaf.com. Um, and that's naughty with an O. We're on social media the same, Naughty AF on Instagram. Um, our website, you can buy direct from us. So we do subscriptions, single bottles. We're also in a lot of places around the UK, like Waitrose, Majestic, certain Sainsbury's, um, and lots of different 
from bars and restaurants. Um, if you're in the north, we're working on that. Uh, we really want a lot more Manchester stockists. So anyone who's got contacts, uh, let me know. Because I think it's very easy as a London brand to end up being a bit London-centric. And we love the North. We have so many private clients there, but we really need to get better at being available in key bars and restaurants there. So I'd love any anyone's sort of advice or recommendations and links to contacts of, of potential stockists, particularly in Manchester, actually. Yeah, I mean, we can um, have that, Yeah. Brilliant. Um, but yeah, the best place to sort of find out about us is, is naughtyaf.com with an O. Great. Um, and what before we end the podcast, Amanda, something that I ask all my guests, it is called Anything is Possible. What does Anything is Possible mean to you? It means actually that when I leave this earth, um, I will have a legacy and I will have made a difference. And I think that that's super powerful. And I would say to anybody now listening, thinking about starting their own business or you know, maybe, or all that separates one idea from a business is that most people don't act on the idea. And I always think if you just take that first step or if you make yourself accountable by sharing your idea with somebody, then it isn't just an idea in your head. Because we all know that lots of people get to the end of their lives and regret things. And I think if, if you can make a difference in the world and leave it in better shape, then why not? Wow, that is that's what it was. I mean, you are so interesting and so as I say, so articulate. I feel like we could have sprung a million different subjects off that. I um I'm sure um that our listeners will be so inspired by your story. I'm actually inspired to try some more of your wines. I've had the sparkling, but I need to widen my um widen my selection. Um Thank you for taking the time um to say yes to doing this podcast. It's always I'm delighted. Oh. Thank you. It's always amazing to have brands and people that you've admired and followed and say yes, it makes for such an interesting episode. So um, so to our listeners, get a bottle of Naughty, try it. Let us know what you think. We certainly will. Um, there we go. And um, Oh, and- Rosé. Rosé's coming. By the time this podcast goes out, the Provence-style still Rosé. Oh, We've wow. had a sparkling Rosé a long time. Still Provence Rosé, set to be the drink of the summer, Holly. Oh, well, I'm just going to put my whispering angel to one side and grab that instead. So, bang on. <laughs> Amanda, thank you for spending some time with us, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you so much. Take care. Have you been wondering what Anything Is Possible Live 2024 is all about? It's a 12-hour personal development experience from 8am to 8pm. Beyond the amazing content that is going to help you achieve your dreams, we have got mega brands, delicious food and drink, unique activations and much more. This is the sign you have been waiting for. It is time to invest in yourself and be part of something amazing. I really hope to see you there. Link in the bio to buy your tickets.